0: Welcome to Conversations from the Collection, a Newcastle Art Gallery podcast. This podcast was produced on the land of the Awabakal and Waramai people. We pay our deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm your host, Zana Kobayashi, and each episode we'll be diving into a new collection area of the Newcastle Art Gallery to uncover hidden stories from artists who have contributed to the significance of our diverse collection. This week, we explore the art form of video and new media as we visit the home of brilliant, multidisciplinary artist, Joan Ross. Hi. Oh, thank you, how are you? Joan lives on the stunning coastline of Sydney's eastern beaches. And as she proudly showed us around, it was easy to get a sense of her love for the natural world, which is also reflected throughout her works of art. See, look down there, at that. Oh, wow! Oh,
1: look at those dragonflies. Oh, it looks like I'm going for snorkels this afternoon. <laughs> Have you got a snorkeling gear? Oh, yeah, no, no snorkeler. Oh, that's it's so
0: one of my good. favorite things. That's amazing. Joan is an embodiment of her vibrant and experimental practice. Her work tackles immensely complex themes such as colonisation and capitalism through a bold and often absurdist lens. Newcastle Art Gallery holds two video works by Joan Ross within its collection. When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a Forger from 2010 and Barbecue This Sunday, BYO from 2011. Both works reimagine paintings by convict painter and forger Joseph Lysett and feature fluorescent digital animations that comment on Australia's colonial history. As our conversation began, I was delighted to discover that Joan credits an art gallery for igniting her ongoing use of animation within her practice. I blame
1: Newcastle completely for this <laughs> because it was actually Newcastle that allowed me this opportunity and I'm not sure what would have happened if I hadn't been offered that opportunity. So Lisa Slade who was a curator at Newcastle at the time and is now over in Agza, she asked me what had I never done that I would love to do mm. and she was doing a a show called Curious Colony and I said I'd always wanted to see a Joseph at work come to life and she said well let's make it happen Uh, So we put an application in for an animation, I didn't even really know, I had no idea how to make an animation, no idea how to go about any of it. And we just found an animator from a friend and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done up until that point, making a video animation when you had no idea how it even worked. So when I first started making, when I grew up I wanted to be a forger, it was such a A different area to be in. I noticed that they wanted for example storyboards from me all the time like what was going to happen but I never work knowing what's going to happen. The only thing I might know is that I would like it to be a looping video so where it starts it ends and so I let my subconscious work it out and I'm quite reactionary so I definitely know what I don't like but I don't always know what I want. So I sat next to a video animator for a couple of months, and it was so stressful. It was, a, it was learning a completely new way
0: of thinking. Was that your first time working so closely in collaboration with somebody else on that sort of level, or was that a process you were already familiar with?
1: I'd never seen myself as a good collaborator, because I tend to know and I don't like anyone else's input.
0: Mm.
1: You know, if I want it read, that's how it's going to be, yeah. <laughs> Well, on saying that, I've actually started to find that collaborating has been actually very fruitful for me. The guy that I work now with on the video animations, um, Josh Raymond, he's really good at interpreting me, but he, he is actually a photographer in his own right. But he he knows what I want, and so he works towards me.
0: Mm.
1: Because when you're the artist in the situation, it's a very so-called intuitive process. But I've learned to be able to trust that in myself because it's actually, it works really well.
0: Mm. And what was it about Joseph Lasset's um, paintings that you were attracted to working with? I had a bit of an obsession with colonization,
1: particularly the moment what I saw as a car crash, the collision of the British arriving in Australia and the absolute lack of sensitivity and harm that it caused. But I really loved these colonial paintings, so I don't. When I go into it, I'm I'm quite. Uh, when I reappropriate the work, I do it w- with care uh, because I do really like it. And I felt like Joseph Lysett was looking. He he was looking at a lot. He was looking in a in a much more open sense, as if he was actually
0: recording what he saw. Uh, when I was looking at them, I understand that. When I grow up, I want to be a forger. The background of that is a complete lyset painting. But I think Barbecue This Sunday, BYO, is a mismatch of different Licet landscapes. Is that correct? So, because I was so fresh to animation,
1: the first video is directly the lyset. But also because video is sixteen nine ratio, you sometimes have to to, to shift them a little bit but when I started making more videos what I did on barbecue this Sunday is I think I f- flipped it. I may have flipped it but not only did I flip it I added to the edges and sometimes bring in different skies and different bits of lysets so I started to get really obsessed by looking at all the lysets and yeah it was really exciting actually.
0: I have a question about um Barbecue This Sunday, BYO. <laughs> yes. The music, the tune that is playing um, behind the sort of picnic scene, what, what tune is that and why did you pick that song?
1: I think before I did Curious Colony and before I made that video, I did a residency at the Lockup in Newcastle and there was this lovely guy there who was also doing a residency there And he would whistle all the time. And I asked him if he could come to Sydney and whistle for me. (laughs) And I got him to whistle, it's the end of the world as we know it.
0: It is that song, yes. I was listening, trying to, to, you know, piece it in. That's the perfect song for that moment.
1: Yeah, it's a perfect perfect song for a lot of those videos. Because that's, I think that's what I... Often see. I remember um, my father lived on the central coast, and I would often go and float out in the water and look up, and you couldn't see any houses. And I would often think, "What was this like before the colonials arrived?" And that's why I put that song in, because it was the end of the world. There's so many funny things in barbecue, though. Can you tell me something? So there's a kangaroo that comes into the barbecue with a bag of sausages but they're kangaroo and pine nut sausages so there's this sort of like wrongness about it but the, again it's a sort of a secret thing I know and I love the idea that I know what those sausages are made of and, <laughs> and the kangaroo is carrying kangaroo you know it's, it's the discrepancy in everything in the way that we're living in in, in
0: Australia. Mm. Absolutely I also love the, um, the blob that's coming down the road secretly No, I didn't notice. Tell me about the blob. (laughs) No. (laughs) I think one of your amazing gifts as an artist is to tackle quite complex themes like colonisation and class, capitalism, environmentalism. But you do it with this really witty, sometimes even absurdist tone. Why is humour such an important tool for you to use? I don't always like to talk about the humour in
1: the work, but let's put it this way. I once tried to make a funny work and I couldn't. What I found out was that when I didn't try, that everyone thought the work was funny. Mm. So I realised that if I was just myself, that people would laugh at it. Yeah,
0: (laughs) okay, that's
1: interesting. So I think I just naturally have an absurdist way about me, but I also know that if I can allow that to happen naturally, it is a way for people to to get into the work, and it's a softer way. Mm. Yes,
0: I've heard you say I have a very strong message to get across, but you want to get it across in the lightest way possible. I do. Which I think is a generous thing to do for people.
1: (laughs) I think that my work is educational. And I think that I wanted to open some of history up to people and open up the questions. I'd become really bored with video work and I just understand it, but I couldn't handle it. I mean, I didn't mind watching David Beckham sleep, but there was a lot of boring video art. So I started, as soon as I started that first animation, it got me really thinking about, the moving image, but I think I often think in advertising because we are very manipulated by advertising and I find that quite interesting. And I'm often in my work not only looking at history, I'm looking at the contemporary at the same time. So I sort of approached making those first videos almost like how to manipulate people into watching something that they didn't necessarily want to know about because I don't like looking sometimes at hard art, like that's telling me really strong messages because it hurts. Mm. So I tried to do it in a way that all levels of people, because there's jokes for art historians in some of the works, the kids love them. Recently they were going to hang one on some high stairs and I said look feel free but there will be dead children. (laughs) I mean children really just like moving images but you know a lot of these works they go to regional galleries and then there's educational programs and kids get to to watch it in a softer way Mm. so it's me talking about colonial history and its legacies in a way
0: that hopefully people will understand. Mm. You were born in Scotland uh, but grew up in Australia I was wondering how this has informed your own identity as an artist in Australia. I mean,
1: let's clarify that. I was born in Glasgow. Yes. (laughs) I wasn't born in... I'm not a posh Scot. (laughs) Uh, I think that Glaswegians don't put up with fools. I was taught that very early on. But when I was about eight or nine, the Queen came to... Parramatta Park and I went to school near Parramatta and the whole school was going to see the Queen and I said to the teacher I'm not going to see the Queen and she said why not and I said I don't believe in what the Queen stands for and I'm not going and she said well we can't offer you supervision you have to ask your mother and so she said yeah of course you can stay home <laughs> Yes. and then they marked me absent and I just walked out of the room I didn't even talk to my teacher and I just walked up to the principal and I said you've marked me absent I said I could come to school, but you couldn't offer me supervision. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) bold. But that was, I had that attitude from an early age Mm. uh, around fairness and unfairness. But I felt like my, I also feel like there's something about being born in another country and coming to Australia. Even though I grew up here, you know, from a young age, I still think that there's something about looking at it from the outside. You can see something different because you're maybe more critical view of it.
0: Yes. Yeah, actually, I, I wanted to ask you that about whether you do feel like an outsider looking in or whether you feel like an Australian critiquing your own culture. I asked a whole audience recently
1: what did they think it meant to be an Australian because it doesn't mean I love the beaches. <laughs> I think patriotism is dangerous. And I think that people have false ideas about what it means to be Australian. And I I think that if we really dissect it, we can't actually tangibly put our hand on what it means. And also you get a lot of people talking about what it's like to be an Aussie, and yet actually what it is to be an Australian is an
0: Indigenous Australian. That's what it's like. Mm. I suppose maybe being born in Glasgow meant that you weren't born into a patriotism about Australia that allowed you to be a little bit more critical, do you think? I think that's true. And also, you know, I think that I have a healthy
1: wariness of the English, you know, because the Scottish people were pushed off the land and I think it just, I've got a strong scepticism.
0: So your Glaswegian uh, upbringing, uh, like I, I understand it was quite feisty. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Maybe this started right at the beginning when my mother was
1: in the snow in a phone box calling the midwife, arguing that she was in labour. Uh, I have been called argumentative. <laughs> and maybe that's where it comes from. Basically she was in labour and by the time the midwife got there, I was born within half an hour.
0: Oh my goodness. Almost out in the snow. <laughs> Almost out in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> and your father also, I understand that he taught you how to fight growing up, is that right? Yeah, look, he was, uh, he'd had a fairly uh,
1: harsh life and, and was living out on, on his own at the age of 12 uh, for a while on the streets and working like a man. Um, and so, you know, Glaswegians are known for fighting and he taught me how to fight. He taught me how to protect myself. He taught me how to never put myself into position of ambush. Once on Facebook, there was a question that said, uh, what did your father teach you? And everyone's like, how to grow a sunflower. And, and I said, how to carry your bag as a weapon. (laughs) He also told me how to attack a group of people. Uh, I never had to do that. (laughs) but it's you know it's stood me in good stead actually
0: I feel like now I can see (laughs) how you've been able to develop a fearlessness in your work in terms of critiquing you know some pretty big institutions (laughs) you have to be pretty brave (laughs) to be able to do those things I think
1: well I think actually that brings us to the National Gallery yeah. work, where I, I had a major commission to project onto the National Gallery in one of the light festivals. And, basically, I got a lot of objects from the collection in my animation, and we smashed them.
0: In your animation? In the animation, and we crumbled the building. Yes, and that was a. You were talking about the relationship between collecting and colonisation within a museums and galleries context. Is that, is that correct? Is that what that work was
1: looking yeah, at? Yeah, I'm actually I'm very critical of the collecting mentality and ownership, and also people displaying work that they think is more important than Indigenous work in different ways. Uh, so, whilst the, the galleries look like they're making you know, big steps forward. It still appears to me to be a very
0: colonial attitude. In the works that we have within our collection, you use a lot of fluorescent colours within it against that Lycett, um landscape, but you actually began to use fluorescent colours after September 11. What was it about that time that made you notice that colour? I noticed
1: that my aesthetic was being colonised it wasn't the term I use at the time, By high-vis, and I didn't like it. I thought, I didn't ask for this. Whenever I'm going out, I'm just seeing flashes of color everywhere. Flashes, flashes. But what happened after 9-11 is that all the insurance premiums went up. And so workers were being made to sign agreements that they would wear high-vis so that people weren't going to be sued. And I realized that the color itself was really interesting. It was a color that held authority It held fear. You could do anything to the land when you were wearing it and not be questioned. And it's quite alien to the landscape. And I really love the look of the
0: fluoro against the colonial pictures.
1: It's also so wrong and I sort of
0: love and hate it. Yeah, it really emphasizes that sort of outsider invasion into that landscape in a really engaging way. But But it
1: also holds authority.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because it's true. Once you wear high-vis, you can almost do it. <laughs> anything.
1: <laughs> Lizanne McGregor from the MCA dared um, my art dealer, Barry Kildulas, and I to go in and just take something while we were wearing high-vis. We didn't do it because, you know, like we could have ended up in jail.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would have made for a great story, though. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had. <laughs> Your work often has a handmade quality to it. Why is that important to you? Well, I purposely leave. So,
1: so with the 3D printed work, uh, I have to hand paint it afterwards for a start. And firstly, when we're doing it, I don't make it perfect. There's, there's bits and pieces that will have jagged bits. I mean, that is, 3D printing is a little bit like that in any case, but we do keep some of those qualities mm. purposely. And I think we're drawn to the handmade. I think we're drawn to a natural gesture from the hand where we see a human is involved in it.
0: I wanted to ask you about the technology that you use in your work because you've never shied away from using new technology. I've seen you work in animation, virtual reality, digitally printed sculptures. What is it that attracts you to working with new technologies?
1: I think that artists need to stay with what's contemporary I'm a contemporary artist so I look at all the contemporary ways to make work uh, I don't shy away but it doesn't mean I'm not slightly terrified sometimes but particularly with virtual reality mm. my first experience with virtual reality I had come up with this fantastic idea we had a week to work on it we had robot birds pretending to be real birds in a dystopian world and they were watching videos I'd made of nature. But you could, sparrows would land on your hand and flowers would grow really big. And so when we showed it to an audience, what I was aware of was that people were much more concerned about the birds landing on their hand and how big they could grow the flowers and they weren't at all interested in my concept. They were just greedy in the space. So I decided you can't make virtual reality art. And then I was in an interview And someone asked me a question about the relationship between colonization and virtual reality. I don't remember the exact question. I only remember the light bulb going on. Mm. And so we walked outside and I said to Josh Hull, who, who runs Tactical Space, and I said, when is that Acme commission due? And he said at midnight tonight. I said, I just came up with the best idea ever can we get that done? Cause I can't write applications. <laughs> so Josh, can you get that done? And he said, right, let's try.
0: And so we got it in and we won it. This was the uh, Mordant Family VR commission yeah. at ACME yeah. in 2018, was yeah. it? Yeah. And so my idea was that this
1: is a greedy space. So let's make people ruin the world by their greediness so that they become complicit in colonisation and see it. And even people went into the space trying not to be complicit and ended up complicit. So they they can't help themselves touching things. So if you you threw a hand grenade, you would grow a factory. If you press that button that said don't push, all the trees would fall down and cows would be mooing. You could play a poker machine. You could kill fish. But you definitely, you're, you're causing havoc. To the landscape and to the world just by your desire for your own self-interest within Mm. it.
0: Which is I think a beautiful metaphor for life in Australia is that we might not want to be perpetuating colonialism but our very existence is perpetuating some of those problems. Exactly and look
1: the world is a greedy place. And, and advertising is making us more and more and more greedy. We want more, more, more. We, we want it instantly. Mm. And I just feel like it's hard for all of us to slow down. But I think that if you can ever get a sense of your own complicitness, you can actually just be a little less greedy and self-centred. I mean, it's actually, you know, I do think that social media is actually really revving this up in people. I think we're in a difficult position in the world at the moment. Mm. It's a really powerful way to deliver that message. Yeah. Yeah. But I did find, I mean, working in these new technologies, as we mentioned before, it's actually quite hard to do. And often when I finish them, I don't ever want to do that again. (laughs) But you've got to, you've just got to be so brave. You've just got to be prepared to learn a lot and and for it to be quite painful. (laughs) All my work's quite complex and very layered. And I actually put a lot of personal emotional things into my work too. And I think uh, because people like a little bit of that rawness involved, they don't always know what they're looking at, but it's stuff that I, I feel really heartfelt about. And I think often people can feel it. They don't, don't always need to know exactly what it is.
0: Yes. Can you give us an example of what oh, something yeah, okay. might be?
1: In the, the video that we first talked about, when I grow up, I want to be a forger. In that video the spirographs were from someone I was secretly in love with spirograph packet from when they were a child. (laughs) That's the sort of thing I do. Yes. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Okay, but this brings me to another thing that I've been doing. For example, Manly Gallery asked me to look through their collection, use a work and, and try to make a work from one of their colonial pictures. So I did a mishmash, but I used a lyset and I looked at what manly landscapes looked like and I photoshopped it to make it look like manly. And it says view of manly, land of the tame. So I started to to change the writing underneath things to tell lies, which brings me to the Sulman Prize.
0: Yes, because you won the Sulman Prize in 2017 with a work titled Oh, history, you lied to me. <laughs> Can you tell us about this work?
1: I'd never been shown in the Art Gallery of New South Wales before, 2017. I'd never entered the... Oh, I'd entered the Archibald, actually, and never got in years before. I decided I wanted to enter the Sulman, and I had started a work and it wasn't really going anywhere. And at 11 o'clock that night, I decided I had a choice. I either stayed up all night or I went to bed and didn't enter because it was due the next day at 4 o'clock and it wasn't framed. So I actually stayed up all night to work on it. I texted my framer saying, expect the work. And then I had Fiona Lowry come over and she said, oh, no, it needs this, this and this. And then I had my old art dealer on the phone saying, you need this, this and this. You need to do that. I don't know how I did it but I got it in and I really surprisingly won it. But what's great about it for me is it's called, Oh, History, You Lied to Me. And again, it's a double-edged sword because it was about history being a lie, being only told from one perspective. It was about a collector, a collector that I call the Butterfly Man, who, who is in a lot of historical uh, colonial works in different forms and he's come into the landscape to collect is butterflies, and I've got a video called Touching Other People's Butterflies from the series Touching Other People's Shopping. <laughs> Best titles ever. <laughs> no idea where they came from. Oh, when I'm in Coles, because once in Coles, I put my hand over the boundary and touched someone's tea and said, Oh, blah, 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 and they slapped my hand away because you can't go over the boundary. So I start looking at boundaries and fences in the same way. It's like, you know, this is like colonisation. This is
0: mine. I own this. Yes, something that was so um, open for anybody to touch just moments ago. Exactly. Once in a basket. I know. (laughs) That's really interesting. Anyway, going back to the Sulman,
1: I think the, the really important thing about history is that we don't know the real truth, and we've been told it from one perspective. But that also was a title with a double meaning, because I had been in a situation with a person who had lied to me. And so it had a lot of power, just for me,
0: in the making of it.
1: But you know, it was a really exciting thing to have won that.
0: Mm, What does winning a prize like the Sulman Prize, what did that do for your career at that time? What's really strange about the Sulman Prize, the Archibald Prize, they
1: really elevate you in certain people's eyes. And that was a lot of fun, <laughs> actually. But it brings me back to the thing about how I started to make works that, that have different descriptions written in exactly the same Lyset text. It's like I'm writing uh, a ransom note. So I use all the letters from Lyset's works And I changed what it said underneath. So one of the best ones was a work I did that was in a show in Tasmania and it said, Land of the Brokenhearted, Van Diemen's Land. And Bob Brown was at the opening and they FaceTimed me to Bob Brown and he said, where was, whereabouts is that in Tasmania? Because it was an image of a woman holding a tree with a background of just logged forest. And he said, where is that in Tasmania? I said, oh, no, that's not in Tasmania. These works are lies. He said, Well, where was it? And I said it was in Castle Hill. And he said, Oh, I grew up near Castle Hill. And I said, "Yes, yeah, so did
0: I. Art is an amazing way to re tell history or reshape yeah. narratives. Yeah. I can see why you're attracted to lies.
1: <laughs> Look, it's an inch because I see history as a lie. I, I I see indigenous people lived in Australia and then I see colonization happened. And I see that everything took off from, you know, we're more concerned about keeping our silverware from being touched by one single finger and we want to keep it in a plastic vitrine than we are about keeping some other things safe that are actually
0: more intrinsic to the Australian landscape. You've become quite a nationally recognised artist and you're even included in the New South Wales visual arts curriculum but I understand you had an interesting relationship with um, your high school and yourself but how does it feel to have reached this
1: stage in your career? Oh well look it can only be a story can't it? My uh, ever since I was four I wanted to be an artist I was clearly had a very good imagination and I was already always going to be an artist but I was dyslexic and in those days no one could tell I may have been other things but I was mainly dyslexic and I couldn't write essays I could write poems I could make up magic invisible spray stories. I could write about the inside of a ping pong ball, but I couldn't write essays. And so I got 6% in my trials for the HSC in art, which caused me to leave school. Much to the horror of my migrant parents, because really they just want the best. Mm. That's why they come to Australia, etc. cetera. Uh, so the first time I was ever used in the trials for the HSC in art, the first thing I did was flick the email to my mother and just write, did I pass? (laughs) So it feels good to me. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I reckon you've passed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Joan, we've come to our last question of our interview today. If you could have dinner with any artist from the Newcastle Art Gallery Collection, who would it be and why? Well, look, I looked through the huge list and and actually quite
1: amazing list of artists that you have in the collection. Uh, Normally, I like to say, you know, there's a few people I do it with. But, you know, really, because it's Newcastle, it would be Joseph Lysett. No question. Because when I grew up, I want to be a forger. The title also comes from when my mother told me that someone had been caught forging. I thought, wow, they must be talented. And isn't that a pity that they got caught? (laughs) And so I'd love to just, you know, talk to him about his, exactly how he did see things, because there's a lot of contention about did he go to Tasmania? And recently I I was watching a a documentary on him and one person said he did go to Tasmania and another one said he didn't, historians. And so, and I've been there and I think, I don't think he could have got that detail of that particular mountain from someone else's drawing but maybe he did anyway so we could have dinner we could talk about that i could tell him what i was doing he could be horrified
0: (laughs) (laughs) that you forged to the forger (laughs) that's right (laughs) Joan Ross thank you so much this conversation has been an absolute delight and pleasure and it's been so great to get to know you better yeah thank you so much Thank you for listening to Conversations from the Collection. If you'd like to know more about Joan and her video works in Newcastle Art Gallery's collection, there are links in the show notes or you can visit the gallery's website at nag.org.au. Join us next week as we explore the world of fine art photography with artist Tamara Dean. I never doubted my inclination to be an artist because it's just always been there. So it was more exciting than scary, I guess. Just going full-time meant that I could just put everything into it, which then meant that I could make the best work I could make. Conversations from the Collection is a Newcastle Art Gallery podcast. This podcast is supported by the New South Wales Government through Create New South Wales. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and share us with your friends.